0: those of you who are new here tonight, this is our Old Testament survey class. Um, Our aim in this class is very simple. It's to show you how each one of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament is really about one central main character, and that main character is Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's right, that Jesus is not just somebody we come and introduce in the Old Testament, but he's actually the central character of every single book. And so this is Uh, What we call a survey, which means we're going over one book of the Bible in one class, or try our best in one class, uh, to give you kind of the highlights of this book and how um, the story of Scripture, uh, the story of Jesus Christ coming to save sinners really is threaded through these particular books. We're in the genre of major prophets. Um, So we've done Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and tonight we're doing Ezekiel, and we'll end to do Daniel next week. Does anybody know why it's called Major Prophets? how long the book. Yeah, simply it's it's not because they're the most important it's just because they're longer, all right? You're going to have five uh, these five major prophets and then we're going to have 12 minor prophets. We're going to group a lot of those uh, together when we get there. But Ezekiel's a pretty huge book. Um, now the context before we do anything, we start with the context of what's going on. We look at historical context, who the author is, when it was written, who's the audience. We look at literary context. Usually that's when we preach through a verse and look at what came before, what came after. We just went over the genre of major prophets. And then we do redemptive historical context. Where is it in the thread of the story, again, of Scripture of God saving sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ? Ezekiel prophesies roughly around the same time as Jeremiah does. In the earliest 6th century B.C., during the time of, remember, Judah's exile. What makes Ezekiel different is that he is actually in a different geographical location than Jeremiah. All right, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem uh, be- from before the first wave of the exiles. Where there's three waves of the exiles, Babylon's fighting the Southern Kingdom of Judah. They're coming to take them over. One wave of exiles comes, then a second, and then and what was that year again when they finally took over? Five eighty six B C. Great. Five eighty six B C. is when they destroy the temple. Come over and uh, and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And so uh, Jeremiah, he's prophesying after that first, from the time of that first wave in Jerusalem to the very end. That's when he's prophesying. Ezekiel, on the other hand, has actually been taken captive to Babylon with the second wave of exiles in five ninety seven B C. Then, after he's taken, he starts prophesying about five years later from Babylon. In fact, open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1, and somebody can go ahead and read the first three verses for me. we got a lot of people here tonight, so let's just somebody slip our hand up. Um, and there you go, Bob. Uh, I did, You know that by slipping your hand up, you volunteer to read, right? Just want to make yeah, sure. Okay, right. I didn't know if you just heard me and oh, did like God, a... Right. All right, good. All right, read those first three <laughs> verses
1: for me. All right. Now, it came to pass in the thirteenth year and the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened and I saw a vision of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. All right. So,
0: so Ezekiel's got a, a much different perspective on the exile, right, since, since he's experiencing it in captivity with Judah's enemies, in the land of Judah's enemies. So his different location actually gives a different perspective to the meaning of his message. And we're going to see that, that much of the message is the result not of experiencing things in the land, but through what Bob just read about Ezekiel being given a what? A vision from the Lord that Yahweh had given to him. Okay, so that's the that's the context. That's the setting of the book. Redemptive historical context is in some ways, strangely enough, similar to the book of Exodus. Uh, maybe you'll remember that the whole theme of Exodus, right, was was Yahweh was zealous to make His name known among the people and to spread the glory of God all throughout the earth. The same focus actually exists right here with just some slightly different conditions. Now, Yahweh's people go not out of captivity, out of captivity, but into captivity for the purpose of making Yahweh's name known and for his glory. See, they profaned Yahweh's name in their own land and among the nations. And now Yahweh is out to vindicate his name And show himself to be holy and gracious. But by the end, we'll also see that Ezekiel preaches that the salvation of the people and their second exodus back out of captivity again will also be motivated by Yahweh's passion for his own glory. So with that, let's look at the theme. Main theme of Ezekiel's book is this. The glory of Yahweh has departed from his land because he's jealous for his name, but his glory will return. Why? Because he's jealous for his name. Ultimately, his glory will be restored to the entire earth in the last days. So if the book of Exodus was the announcement and the introduction of this Yahweh and, and all of his glory onto the world stage, then Ezekiel is actually seen as the, the vindication of his name, fame, and glory after years of practice on his part in the face of neglect and on his, on his people's part. So all of it is meant to point forward to a day when, when Yahweh's glory will cover the whole earth as the other prophets also get a lot of mileage uh, of the, the image of waters covering the sea, right? Isaiah, Isaiah Habakkuk talk about that. But in Ezekiel, the language of the Exodus is really pronounced and not just in a few places, but throughout. So when the theme think it's much like the book of Exodus, that would be a good, you no, know, that would be just that'd be a really good quiz question, right? There you go. And all God's people said, Oh don't. no. Um, all right. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's go ahead and look at theme text. I gave you the theme outline. Again, this study is only helpful for those who are reading their Bible, right? Remember, this, the purpose of this class is that we're making disciples. We're taking these things, and that by the end of the Old Testament survey, if I were to give you this manuscript, you would be able to walk somebody through how each book of the Bible represents or pictures Jesus Christ is about Jesus Christ. Okay, So so understand these outlines. They're really helpful for you as you're reading through to keep the main focus in. Um, That's given to you there. Now we're going to look at a couple texts in Ezekiel and kind of dive just a little bit deeper as we keep our bird's eye view in the survey. Okay, Let's move right into Ezekiel 1. We don't have a lot of time at this moment, but I'd really recommend to you, I'm not going to give you a lot of reading assignments this week, but read Ezekiel 1 at some point This week, we often talk about Isaiah 6 as this really great picture of being brought into the glory of God, right? Isaiah seeing the chairman, woe is me, but but, but Ezekiel 1, when it comes to Yahweh's self revelation of his own glory, Ezekiel 1's got very few parallels in all of the scripture, okay? Um, So for now, I want to look at verse 26 of chapter 1, uh, reading all the way to the first verse of chapter 2, and I'll go ahead and read that one for you. Ezekiel one twenty six. We're going to stop at verse two or chapter two verse one. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Amen. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. All right. Those of you with the ears were here, you're going to recognize some text here, right? Isaiah 6, as I said, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 4, Even Exodus 24 with Moses, those are chapters in the Bible where a prophet is describing a vision of Yahweh's glory that is given to them. You're going to notice a lot of things in those texts as well as this one. First, notice this. Isaiah 6 and and Exodus 24 and Revelation 1, uh, Those um, those, uh, in those texts Yahweh himself is not described. Okay, get that. It's very important you hear that. Yahweh is not being described. Only his surroundings and his garments are. These people are not seeing Yahweh himself. Why are they not seeing Yahweh himself in these visions? Why? His eyes are too pure to approve evil. He cannot look upon wickedness with favor. So not Yahweh himself. But they're seeing a manifestation of his glory. And even that is too much for them where they have to say, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Or their face gets burnt if you're Moses, right? Um, And so, second, the person having the vision of Yahweh's glory, when they see God, always ends up where? On their face, in fear and worship. How, How might we, too, be humbled and our lives changed if we kept these visions of Yahweh's glory ever before us as well? Third, what does Yahweh do to those people who are in fear? He consoles these people. Uh, they rightly do fear, right? Because they're sinners. But Yahweh's dealing with them. He's abundantly kind and gracious, merciful. And lastly, they're seeing a manifestation of God's glory. Who are they seeing? Jesus. Now, revelation 1 explicitly calls itself the revelation of Jesus Christ. And John 1.14 tells us, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten <clears throat> Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 tells us even more explicitly that Jesus Christ is the brightness or the radiance of His glory and the express image of His person. In other words, Jesus Christ is the fullest expression and manifestation of the glory of God. If you want to encounter God, where do you go? Jesus. To Jesus. That's right, Bob. No other major religious leader ever even claimed to come close to the expression of God's glory. And yet that's exactly who Jesus is. Further, in the context of John's gospel, do you all have these texts in your notes? Sure, with two and a half pages, you probably do. Justin's like, I all this work, and you're just blowing right through all these. Hey, no. All right. Jesus says that his greatest work of demonstrating the Father's glory was on the cross. Speaking of the cross in John 13, what did he say? He wants to read that one. <clears throat> that one in there,
2: John 13,
0: 31, and 32?
3: The reference, Maybe not the actual Oh, verse. come on.
0: See, then you got me.
1: Okay,
0: all right. I'll, I'll read it. I've got it written. But y'all are, I'm coming for you in Ezekiel. Y'all stay there. Uh, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. The effect of Jesus glorifying God, and God glorifying, not God God glorifying Jesus, that's a tongue twister, is told to us in John 17 when Jesus prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they may know you and... Jesus Christ, the one who you send. Sorry, know you the only true God, Jesus Christ, who you need to So the point of all of this is this. The only place to see God's glory and who God is in all his manifold perfections is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. The place where God's glory most specifically shines forth from Jesus is in Jesus' death and resurrection, which was accomplished to give sinners. As I just read, eternal life and knowledge of God to say it as bluntly as possible the only way to know God and have eternal life is in the gospel of his son Jesus Christ to claim that there are any other ways to know God and inherit eternal life is to belittle the glory of God as he expressed himself in Christ not only that it also defames the greatness of who God is so what we're about to see what I just said is exactly what we're about to see Because this is what the people did in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, they belittled the greatness of who he was by turning from God and worshiping idols. We'll see that in Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 7. You can read the rest of Ezekiel's call to ministry in chapters 2 and 3. In chapters 4 through 7, we see the beginning of the announcements against Jerusalem for their idolatry. And even though Ezekiel is already in exile, he still nonetheless foretells Jerusalem's (coughs) final destruction. I said earlier, this destruction is motivated by Yahweh's zeal for his own namesake. So let's read a couple of those verses now that tell us that. Uh, Turn to chapter 5. Someone read chapter 5, 13. Then someone read chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And then right after that, someone read chapter 7, verse 27. Who's taking the first one? Charles, go ahead. Who's taking the second one?
2: Thus shall...
0: Sorry. Go ahead, Charles.
2: Go
0: ahead. Okay. Who's taking the second one? Richard's got the second one. I
2: got it. Phil's got the third one. Go, Charles. All right. Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Good. Chapter 6, verses 9 and and 10. Sorry. And those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, because I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me. And by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols, they will loathe themselves with the evils which they committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have, set, I have not said in vain that I will bring this calamity upon them. All right, chapter 7, verse 27. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed apart, and the hands of the people of the land of the According to their conduct, I will deal with them, and by their judgments I will judge them. And they will know that I am the Lord.
0: Anybody catch a common theme going on there? And they will know what? I am the Lord. Alright, so again, reversal of Ezekiel. The exile like, I'm sorry, not Ezekiel, the reversal of Exodus. The exile like the Exodus before it is Yahweh's proclamation of his holy character. Okay, so this goes on for a while. Uh, and then we move to Ezekiel chapter 20. In fact, um, we're going we're gonna to come back to Ezekiel 8 through 11. But I want to stop at chapter 20 for a while and remind us. That Yahweh's motivation, again, behind all of these actions has been for the sake of his own name. Okay? Remember this. Always remember this. God is about his own glory. And we hear that, and it sounds weird to us. It sounds egotistical of God. But when we do that, we're, we're putting God down to our level. Like, he's therefore not worthy about being for his own glory. But when you recognize who God is, you recognize that him being about his own glory... Is for our good. It's the greatest good in all the universe because He has gifted us His glory in the person of Jesus Christ. The gift of all of life is to know God. It would be egotistical if I said, the gift of every one of your lives is to get to know me, Cody Page, right? (laughs) Why? Even though I think I'm awesome. I'm not all that awesome, right? I'm sinful. There are things in me which are not worthy of glory. Certainly, for God to say, the gift of your life is to know me is perfectly fitting because of how glorious he actually is. Okay? And then that's the very purpose we're created. So, Ezekiel 20, why hadn't Yahweh destroyed his own people while they were still in Egypt? Already rebelling against him and his servant Moses. Verse 8 and 9. Yeah, somebody read that.
2: But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and will fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known to them. To bring them out of
0: the land of Egypt. Okay, so why didn't Yahweh destroy his people while they were in Egypt, rebelling against the servant Moses? Why?
3: Yeah, for the sake of his name.
0: For the sake of his own name. Alright, we're going to get the hang of this. Somebody read verse 13 through 14, because now we ask the question, why didn't Yahweh then wipe Israel away? Even when after his great deliverance, they rebelled against him in the wilderness. Why didn't he wipe them away then? Somebody read Ezekiel 20, 13 and 14.
2: But the people of Israel rebelled against me and they refused to obey my greed there in the wilderness. They wouldn't obey my regulations even though obedience would have given them life. They also violated my Sabbath days, so I threatened to pour out my fury on them. And I made plans to utterly consume them in the wilderness. But again, I held back in order to protect the honor of my name before the nations who had seen my power in bringing Israel out of Egypt. All right,
0: why didn't he wipe them away in the wilderness? <coughs> the honor of his name. The honor of his name. You're getting it. That's good. Okay. Now, as we just read, it's the same motivation that has brought Judah to an end. Okay, it's the same same reason why he's actually brought the nation of Judah to an end. But Yahweh will also bring his people back from exile. And again. He's going to bring them back from exile, not because of their unrighteousness, but because of Yahweh's zeal for his own name's sake. As we read in verse 41, I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered. And I will be hollowed in you before the Gentiles. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raised my hand and an oath to give to your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you've committed, then you shall know, stop me if you've heard this before, right? You getting tired of it yet? Well, the people of Israel should run. That I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. Wow. Yahweh's motivation is to deal with his people in a way that always most glorifies his own name. Here's the point. That, dearly beloved, is really good news. Woe betides us all if God were to deal with us only according to our own merit and worth. See, that's, that's really the only two options. You know that, right? God can either deal with us according to his own glory, or he can deal with us according to our own merit and what we deserve. Let me just tell you, we don't want this one, right? Because what have we earned and deserved in this world? Death and God's wrath and an eternity spent in hell. But his dealings with us are premised upon his own desire To bring himself glory and to lift up the worth of his own name. So again, this book is about Jesus. Because in Christ, who gets the glory for Christ's work? God. And what do we get? Salvation. It's the best of all worlds. In fact, did you notice in verse 43 how this should result in, in great contrition and humility in the hearts of those who are saved? Look at that. See, there are many who say that Christianity is arrogant because of all the truth claims we have. And while I do not doubt that some Christians are arrogant, it's not fault of their doctrine that they are. It's no fault of the gospel. They are because they actually don't entirely (laughs) comprehend and they misapply the gospel when they're arrogant. But the gospel itself can't be blamed for breeding arrogance. It worked into, in, into the gospel is everything to actually prevent arrogance. Paul brings this together well, these two ideas of God's public demonstration of his own righteousness and the Christian's humility. Look what he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 27, some of the greatest texts in all the scriptures.
1: You got it, Bob? You there? Sure. All right, go ahead. Uh, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because of his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then, it is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith.
0: Guys, we, we need
1: to take a good, hard
0: look at the gospel and always walk away humble and contrite. As we read here in verse 43, God forbid that you and I should ever boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. For in Christ's own work of righteousness avail for nothing, but a humble, trusting faith in God's Son regenerates and gives new life in Christ. In fact, you could actually read Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 60 through 63. Or another really powerful text on this idea. But we got to move. Back to chapter 8 now, keeping with this theme of God's glory. Turn on back to chapter 8. You're saying, Pastor Cody, look at the time. Why are we going backwards? This is a survey. We need to go forward. Hush. All right, so let's turn back to chapter 8 now and look at a very interesting event. In chapter 8, Yahweh gives Ezekiel a vision of what's happening back in Jerusalem. Remember, where's Ezekiel? Babylon. Babylon, good. It's a vision uh, that he gives Ezekiel of the idolatry that's still taking place in Jerusalem. So get this. Here Ezekiel is. He's being taken captive out of his own land because of the people's sin. And he's given a vision about what's happening back home. In verse 5, Ezekiel sees idolatry at a place called the altar gate. Then in verse 7, he's given a vision about idolatry in the place called the door of the court. Verse 14, in the north gate of the temple... And finally, in verse 16, in the inner court of the temple. What would be significant about those locations? Altar gate, door of the court, north gate of the temple, inner court of the temple. They are following a pattern. Where are they following? Closer and closer to God. Right. What was the inner court of the temple? What was there? That's right. Closer you were to get in the temple, the more holy the land was supposed to be, the more specifically hallowed for the worship of Yahweh. We read about that in what book? Be holy for I am holy. I'm preaching it.
1: Leviticus. (laughs) Leviticus. All right,
0: I'm going to do it, promise. All right. Um, But here, Ezekiel sees more and more idolatry as the visions get closer to the holy holies in the temple. And it's because of that we see the following. In fact, I know I told you to turn to chapter 8, but we didn't read any of that. Chapter 10. Go ahead and read uh, verse 4 of chapter 10, someone.
3: Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of God's glory.
0: Okay, so in this context, remember the glory of the God of Israel, there's this manifestation of fire and smoke cloud that dwelt in the Holy of Holies. It represented a particular um, physical manifestation of Yahweh on earth and is what made the Holy of Holies the holiest place on earth. Hopefully, you remember that from our study in even Exodus and 1 Kings. Remember the cherubim? Statues of, of angels carved in gold that covered the Ark of the Covenant, which was also in the Holy of Holies. And the glory of the God of Israel rested where? Above those cherubim, right? But yeah. Uh, so, what Ezekiel's seeing here is that Yahweh is leaving his dwelling
3: place,
1: he's
0: leaving his sanctuary and moving to the threshold of the temple. Uh, what, what Ezekiel sees next is really hard to describe. In following verses, he sees now these cherubim real live come, come to life. They're very large, heavenly creatures, angels, not statues this time, <laughs> driving a sort of throne that has a wheel on it. That's all I can describe it as. It's sort of like a heavenly chariot, except the seat is empty. This isn't the first time he's seen this. You can read a lot more about this chariot in chapter 1 as well. Uh, but somebody read chapter 10, verses 16 through 17.
2: When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And When the cherubim lifted their wings from up to the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. And when the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted himself up from the spirit of the living creature within them. Right, so so what's going on here? What does that mean? What
0: what's the what's the purpose of this chariot? Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple, and stood over the cherubim, the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So so what's happening here is this divine chariot taxied by these awesome creatures is coming to the temple to pick up the glory of Yahweh and do what? Escort them on out of there. That's a sad vision. Consoling as well but it's also frightening at the same time. It's sad because it represents Yahweh's displeasure with the people's covenants on covenant on faithfulness. That he will no longer dwell in the temple. That means that the temple is no longer what? No longer
1: dwells. Yeah,
0: it's no longer holy. It's no longer where he's at. So in sacrifices, what do we do with those? It'll be made to no use. But it is consoling in one way. In fact, somebody read chapter 11, verse 6.
1: You've multiplied your slain in the city and you filled the streets with with the slain.
0: Okay. Yeah, you multiplied your slain in the city and filled this with that Can't be right. <laughs> Did I do that? Eleven six. Yeah, I must have missed that one. Sixteen. Yeah. Yes, sixteen. Sorry, sixteen, not <laughs> six. Eleven. <laughs> Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. That's much better, right? All right. Yeah. So, uh, the, the point of that is the glory of Yahweh is, is portable, and the fact that it is portable like this means that ultimately one needs neither land, Nor temple nor sacrifices in order to know God and to worship him as such these things land temple and sacrifices they were just means to that greater end of knowing Yahweh with a mind and worshiping him with a heart it doesn't matter where you geographically do this and that's what makes Ezekiel chapter 11 so exciting or chapter 1 so exciting because Ezekiel's in Babylon when he sees this vision of the glory of God of Israel And he's still there. Like for the first 11 chapters, he's still in Babylon because Yahweh is not confined by space. His glory fills the whole earth. In other words, Yahweh himself is the people's dwelling place. Not a land, not a temple. Soon, nonetheless, he will bring his people back to that symbolic land in safety to know him again. But this time, it'll be through those means. First, however, because of the people's sins, they'll be scattered, and the destruction of the temple is a hair-raising verdict from heaven against them. See this in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 11. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Yahweh's glory goes... Probably louder than that. But leaves and rests on the mountain opposite the city, and the mountain... The mountain's known as a place of attack, right? What do you think of Revenge of the Sith? I've got the high ground, um, right? It's like a lioness that perches herself on a rock. It's about to pounce on her prey. So Yahweh will next turn on Jerusalem and destroy the city where he once dwelt. That, we said it was frightening. That's kind of why that part's frightening, all right? Where are we? We're doing good. we got 15 minutes left. Ezekiel 14. Okay. We've talked a lot about idolatry so far, uh, particularly through the major prophets. Uh, but I'd really be surprised if there's anybody in this room that has wooden or metal carvings at home. So, <laughs> Jason makes wooden, uh, wooden carvings, but he doesn't bow down and worship.
2: Them, right? um, all right. um,
0: I'd be surprised if any of us have actual these types of idols that they had in that time and that we bow down and worship. So... Typically, when we look at Old Testament idolatry, really the pra- practical admonition for us can sometimes just be lost. Because um, we think we're not so foolish as to bow down and worship things. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting how the TV is always in the center of the home, too. Right. Um, what is this thing? Um, yeah. What do I have neck problems again? Yeah. Uh, nobody else? Just me? fun All right. Uh, All right, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Someone read verse
3: 3. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put them before that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them?
0: The idols of the what? Hearts. Let me define idolatry for you in its simplest terms. Idolatry is taking anything other than the true God and turning it into a commodity meant to bring the person security in this world. That's what it is. Using anything people were using for them for security, contentment, hope in this dangerous world. That's what it is. And the draw of the idol is that you get to control it and set the terms of the relationship you don't necessarily have to bow down to it or call it your God in order for it to be an idol though it just needs to be the thing that you rest your confidence and security (coughs) the thing you think that you can control in the Apostle Paul's words it's trading the truth of God for it's the admonition to flee from idolatry is it practical now? Did you think of something? What sort of things do we turn into idols in our hearts, even if we don't call them idols with our lips, or bow down to them on our knees, or lift our hands up to them in prayers? In fact, I want to continue to think about uh, contemporary idolatry, and there's no other place to do it than J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, chapter 4, is really great. He, He makes the case, we went through this in Sunday School not too long ago, he makes the case... That idols are not only images of false gods, but get this. Idols can even be images of the true God. What do I mean by that? These images do not only exist in physical form, but they also exist in our minds. Hear me. Anytime we speculate and guess what God is like, without it being guided by his own revelation of himself found in his word, we're guilty of idolatry. Packer says this. All of what that is, what's called speculative theology, which rests on philosophical reasoning rather than biblical revelation, is at fault here. To follow the imagination of one's heart in the realm of theology is the way to remain ignorant of God and to become an idol worshiper. Hmm. Packer tells us that we are therefore summoned to recognize that God the creator is transcendent, mysterious, and inscrutable beyond the range of, of any imagining or philosophical guesswork of which we're capable, and hence a summons to us to humble ourselves, to listen and learn of him, and to let him teach us what he is like and how we should think of him. We are compelled to take our thoughts of God, from God, from his own holy word, and form no other source whatsoever. Okay, so this is important because we typically use the term my God. And if that God, that my God is anything of your own creation, that's not just what God has described in the revelation of his word, you could be guilty of worshiping your God that may not be the true God of the Bible, right? Mm. Think about that in the way we use that term. So, as we read in Jeremiah last week, this is exactly what the people of Judah did not do. They did not listen to God's word, his self revelation of who he is, and so as expected, they ended up in idolatry. And it all started with not listening. Remember that theme in Jeremiah? Packers advising us not to make the same mistake and end up in the same place. But we need to be careful here. Idolatry does not only come from false objects of security and speculative theology, creating a God in our own minds outside of his word and worshiping him, but also by osmosis from the social context we live in. What does that mean? Okay, who in here has perfect knowledge of God sitting here right now? Didn't think so. No matter how well our parents, churches, schools, or our own study have taught us, we are all deficient in some way in our knowledge of God that correct? You would agree? We've been Mm -hmm. unavoidably influenced by our society, experiences, and our own form of logic to think of God in ways determined by that society, by those experiences, and by that logic. And then you throw in our own sinfulness and selfishness into that mix, and we are all prime candidates to shape God in our minds exactly the way we want him to be. We were made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in ours, Packer says. And we're all impacted by our surroundings. We can easily craft a false god in our own minds, sincerely believing that we're worshiping the true God. Remember what John Calvin said in the book of Psalms? Or in our study of Psalms? That the heart is a factory of idols. So what can we do? Well, the remedy's always the same, isn't it? If, if we're tempted... To create a God of our own minds, therefore, where do we go? Or Scripture, right? Revelation of the Word of God. We should think of our minds as though they were cups of full water that we just can't dump out. We've had teaching and experiences and sins that we just can't jettison from our lives. And as mentioned, those teaching experiences and sins, they've contributed to at least slightly an apparent view of who God is. And no one in here is immune from this. Well, you can't just dump dirty water out of a cup. How do you purify it? You pour more and more fresh water into the cup to dilute the dirty out of the cup and cause it to overflow out of the cup. That takes time. And you'll never completely clean the cup or the water in the cup 100%, but you can certainly make improvement. Our minds are the same way. We need to continually pour the fresh water of God's word into our minds to flush out all the effects and influences in our minds that cause us to see a skewed vision of God and understand Him in apparent ways. Again, in Packer's words, the mind that takes up with images is a mind that has not yet learned to love and attend God's Word. Let's go. Ezekiel 34 through 37. Uh, let's look now back in Ezekiel at the promises of restoration. Turn to chapter 34. There is so much good stuff here. 34 through 37, wonderful prophecies about Christ. If you're into those visions and prophecies, we could be here the rest of the day. It's great. But let me just point out a few passages, a few comments, and leave you to discover the richness of this section of Scripture on your own. First in chapter 34, Yahweh says that he will give his servant David to shepherd his people. What's the problem with that? They
1: flawed. They
0: did David's dead. (laughs) He's flawed because uh, he ain't alive no more. Um, So, yes. So, of course, he doesn't mean David literally, but one like David and David's kingly line. Somebody read chapter 34, verses 23 and 24 for me.
3: I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken.
0: Who be that shepherd? That's right, John. Chapter 10, right? And chapter 36, you can also read about the gift of the new heart, just like in Jeremiah. Somebody read chapter 36, 25 through 27 for me.
2: I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will
0: keep my judgments. Ooh! So we're seeing here that Yahweh's solution for the salvation of His people is to give them a Savior, Jesus Christ, and with that Savior comes, remember Jeremiah thirty-one hearts which we know to be the work of the holy spirit living inside believers all of this will be like a resurrection of yahweh's people so what we see in 37 verses 12 through 14 therefore prophesy and say to them thus says the lord god behold o my people i will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of israel then you shall know look at that; it's right there that i am the lord When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put new covenant. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it. Says the Lord. Hmm. This, as you know, is that that famous vision of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry 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 Bones. Right. Good. Uh, so, uh, by the word of God and the movement of the Spirit, the dead come to life. One particular exciting passage here is Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four through twenty-eight. I'll let you read that on your own. But as we read that text, it, you can hear David. His covenant with David his covenant with Moses. The covenant with Abraham. Oh, I really want to read that text. Read that text, circle that, read that text on your own. Your covenant theology, the understanding, all these covenants, and the interpretation of the Old Testament, God's promises to his people, see them all right there in 37, 24 through 28. The last line, I believe, the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling among and living in the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. And notice, it'll be through spirit filled believers that the nations will know God. Let's close it out. The book closes with a couple of eschatological visions. Eschatological visions. Meaning? End times. end times. Good. All right. Chapters 38, 39 describe the end times defeat of all Yahweh's enemies. And in chapters 40 through 48 describe a mammoth-sized temple that will be rebuilt since the old one has been destroyed. Now, spoiler alert. I do not believe this is a literal prediction. Rather, I believe it's meant to give the people in exile hope and to prophesy a future reality even greater than the temple. It's meant in vivid and dramatic fashion to emphasize the return of Yahweh's glory after having seen it leave in chapters 8 through 11. Um, The main point of this vision is meant to teach that Yahweh has returned to dwell with his people forever, and the description of the temple is meant to encourage the captives in exile and give them hope. It's the same point made in Revelation 21 as well. In fact, let's turn there and we'll close Revelation 21. You know where that is? Go to the end, and then go a little bit left. Revelation 21, verse 2 and 3 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be with their God notice the glory of the city is that Yahweh is there dwelling with his people in describing the city to make the point of Yahweh's immediate presence with his people John ironically employs the exact opposite vision that Ezekiel does to press upon the people the magnitude of how wonderful it is that Yahweh dwells among his people Ezekiel described a huge magnificent awe inspiring temple didn't he but to make the same point what does John say? Somebody read verses
2: 22 through 24. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the landlord is temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the God is illumined in it, and its lamps is a lamp. All right,
0: so John says, Where's the temple? No temple. Ain't no temple. You know why? because the temple actually separated the people from God as much as it did unite them to him. See, even though the temple meant that Yahweh dwelled among his people, it also meant that he couldn't dwell with them immediately and had to be separated from them because of his holiness and their sins. Remember, he dwelled again in the most inner court, the Holy of Holies, where no one could go but one man once a year and not without the blood of a sacrifice. Here in Revelation 21, John still wants to emphasize that Yahweh dwells with his people. But John also gets the privilege and what to be pure joy of announcing to the people that Yahweh can dwell with his people without need for a temple any longer. This because his son, Jesus Christ, has taken away his people's reproach by dying on the cross for their sins and rising again from the grave, granting victory over death and eternal life. And the unmediated, unhindered, uninterrupted presence of Almighty God for all who turn to Jesus in faith and declare Him Lord of all. Amen. Amen. All right. Conclusion. Jeremiah and Ezekiel—they're exciting. They're long books, but they're filled with a brim of great theology. I've enjoyed them. I hope you have as well. Uh, There's some real heavy hitters of the Old Testament. Big chunk. I think it's two weeks. That's well, three weeks. We've covered almost 150 chapters. Right. Uh, so we're not done yet because what's coming next Daniel. Daniel, Daniel's just as exciting right, get ready for his message next week as well any questions, comments thoughts
2: Charles so when you were talking about having images, when you talk about Gav Packer, something that I've always thought that people can to see how would you um, know that your faith has been put in a false god. I would say the two determining
0: factors for me have always been: um, if it's taken away from me, does it cause me to sin? Uh, and am I willing to sin in order to attain it? I think that, to me, has been always been a determining factor of whether or not this thing has captivated my heart. When it's taken from me, right? So. Uh, College football, right? Uh, The Gators losing, which happens on a regular basis. The Lord's been faithful to allow them to lose lots, right? Um, Obviously, that's a silly idol, right? But when that happens, how much of my joy is actually tied up into that when it's taken away, right? When they lose or whatever happens, how much is it causing me to sin? And am I willing to sin, put my hope in something, in order to obtain some sort of thing back, right? Some sort of gift of, of I don't know, bragging rights or whatever it is. Back. That's how I would always define how I know there's been a clear eye in my life.
2: I'm not. I'm not talking about regular eyes. I'm talking about our false knowledge. Yeah. Of,
0: say so. Of easy. God, like, yeah.
2: You know, we use scripture to define God, but there's many times, and I've noticed in my life where I think about God and I focus on that and. Then I read my Bible and I go, ooh, that's not something that's true anymore. Yeah,
0: and I think that's it right there is when when we are unwilling to lay the God of our own minds down for the God of Scripture, right? When we come to the idea to say, say I, you know, if it's I believe that that I can lose my salvation, right? I've always believed that God's the type that you have got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and save yourself and keep your own salvation if you want. Then I come to the Scriptures and I see that God actually through His Spirit, preserves His people, but I say, you know what? Let me try and fit this clear teaching of God's Word into my idea of who God is. That's when I've created a God of my own mind as opposed to submitting to the true hermeneutical interpretation of the Word in its context and laying down my idea of God that's constantly ever being shaped by His Word.
2: Okay, if we were to have faith in that God and not want to lay it down, would, I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but... How does that affect your
0: salvation? Sure, that's Um,
3: on a case by case
1: basis. Right, I would say
0: I would say certainly it would have to. I mean, it it would depend. If you if you create a god in your own mind and you're unwilling ever to submit that god, um, uh, and and particularly we deal not because we confuse this with tertiary, secondary issues and, and core salvific issues. Right there are there are core tenets of the gospel. The resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement, that cannot be debated, right? right. So I'm not necessarily talking about those things um, because I feel like there's always a sense in which we're growing in our theology because it's sanctification, okay? Uh, but, but I think the true Christian is always acknowledging their need to be grown in their theology and is always willing to lay down their own thoughts and ideas about God for the authority of his words. The only way we're sanctified is by more of the word and less of self. Um, simultaneously if there's a just a disagreement where my argument for one of these secondary issues is actually rooted and grounded in an interpretation of scripture that may be one of those things that's not nearly as clear then then that would be a little bit different right but i think when we're talking heretical issues then it's going to be clear that yeah your faith in that that god that's that's clearly not in the Bible is that's not true salvation right it's not true faith it's an, it's
1: that the
3: object of your faith is an idol, right? So, I, I would say too. It, I mean, if, if I'm adopting a posture that I, I don't want to receive what somebody's teaching, uh, and yet at the same time saying I, I, I will listen, I want to take notes and take note of that, but I'm going to compare it back to the scriptures. Right. And that that kind of that kind of posture. If I'm avoiding that for some reason, right. then it may be because I'm trying to hedge against something, or I'm trying to protect some sort of
0: yeah.
3: uh, teaching that's not biblical. And so I just if, if I'm yeah. if I'm getting if, I, if I'm myself kind of stiffening to to the teaching of the word, then I, maybe I need to do a heart check. Right.
2: That's that's a good word. It's a good indication of R&T. How do you point
0: that out to people? I think you, you do it by displaying the, the true authority of Scripture. Okay. Like you show them in the Word. Okay. Yeah. And, and if they're the Lord's, if they're truly the Lord, there will be a spirit that'll, that will produce the fruit and evidences of humility and desire for growth and sanctification. If they're not truly the Lord's, and they're in blatant heresy, then they're not truly the Lord's. And guess what? The answer still is presenting them with the God of the Bible, because that's where the right. power's at. So,
3: yeah. Good. And you you don't have to necessarily say, well, this, this chapter, this verse says, just keep telling them scripture. Yeah. Because it's God's word and he's speaking through it. I, I don't have to say that it's Romans 3.23 for, for God to speak through it, right? right. It's right. It's his word. So, another, another case for memorizing the scriptures.
0: Any other questions, thoughts, comments? All right, we can, we can certainly do that afterwards here. There's a big class, a lot of people here. Always, always, always. Um, we'll stay here as long as we want to discuss any things because remember what the point of this is, right? You should feel better equipped to have a grasp of what Ezekiel is about um, than when you came into this room. And if you struggle and wrestle with that, like if it's not something that's really that just stuck with you, that you were able to communicate that in a succinct way that's through the scriptures, then stay as long as you want. We will equip you and walk through what that looks like uh, in this class, all right? All right, thank you so much for being here. Anybody want to close us in prayer? Me? I do. Yeah. Oh, good, Matt. Father, thank you for this time that we can come to hear your word. I pray that you would um, help us all to just be encouraged by your word, but also to, to really be um, challenged to dig in and to get to know you better, to know your Your purpose for us. I pray that you would help us um, all to to take the, the lessons from Ezekiel to reflect on our own lives and how we can better serve you and know you better. May you be with us and help us to share your word and your gospel as we crop through this week and bring us back together on something. just name Amen. Thank you guys we'll see you next
1: week.